0: Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Morning, everyone. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And If you just bow your heads with me once more, um, let's go to God before we dive into God's word together. Lord Jesus, we uh, thank you for your word. Um, Every Sunday we come to it, and every Sunday we stand in awe of your wisdom, your might, and your love for us. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us where we are weak, um, where we are distracted, where we are focused, where we are hurting, um, where we are isolated from you, Lord. Where your Holy Spirit draw us to you and overcome the weaknesses and obstacles we have in our hearts. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. So we've been walking through the book of Ephesians here for five weeks now. This is our fifth week in it, in a series called Beautiful Occupation. And I want to give you guys a challenge this week, and that challenge is to, on your own, read the book of Ephesians out loud in one sitting. It'll probably take you 20, 30 minutes to do so. If you don't have a Bible, you can visit the tables in the back, have some Bibles on it. You could grab one and take it home with you or use your phone. Um, But being able to sit down and read out loud uh, a book of the Bible is an important part of studying God's Word because it reminds us that far more than just isolated chunks of scriptures or paragraphs or broken up headings, that the 66 books that make up the Bible are individual books. Just like a story you would tell your kids or a letter you would write to your friends, each book in its total has a structure, has a narrative, has a theme, has arguments that build off of each other. And when we do weekly preaching here, expositional preaching at Sovereign Hope, we grab small portions of that text and we begin to really dive down into that. But a good student of the Bible not only has these deep dives through Scripture, but you know to, along with it, uh, also have these larger flyover views of Scripture. And as much as we try in our preaching to hold those bigger themes together, sometimes we have to step back and read the whole text again to see what the author is doing. And these kind of practices are really important with texts specifically like the one we have today. It's pulling from all sorts of things that have happened in the past in this book. And if you remember last week when we were together, we finished Ephesians chapter 2. And in it, Paul lays this foundation for for the church. The foundation of the church is that God's people is no longer a specific race. It's no longer a specific bloodline according to man. But instead, it is a diverse, multi-ethnic community of people who have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And he ends this uh, section on how God has reconciled us to him and how God has reconciled us to one another with this ode, almost this song, to what Jesus is doing inside the church. And this is where we ended last week in verses 19 through 22 of chapter 2. Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that is in Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so here Paul brings this weighty description of what's going on in this gathering and the gatherings there are across the globe of his church. That in these places, in these assemblies, Jesus Christ is building people together, growing us up into a dwelling place for God by the power of the Holy Spirit. In light of this monumental task, Paul now is going to pray for the church. Seeing the big things that God wants to accomplish through his people, he now goes to pray. And he's done this before in Ephesians. Ephesians has a number of sections where Paul is praying for the people he's writing to. We saw this earlier in chapter 1, where Paul began to pray, and he said uh, he said this. He says, for this reason, And now, again, this is how our text starts today. Paul begins to pray again in Ephesians 3, verse 1, where he says this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he stops himself. He doesn't continue. And if you have your Bible open, you could skip down to to verse 14, where he continues his prayer. He picks up again, mid-thought, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father.
1: And so here we have, if we're
0: looking again at this structure of what Paul is doing in Ephesians, we have chapter 2 highlighting this wonderful, divine, grace-filled task that the church is to do, to grow up together into Christ. And then he's going to pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the church is able to do just that. But what happens in between? What happens between the task that Paul is giving the church, the great end to which we've been brought together, and the prayer wherein which he wants to empower us with the Holy Spirit to do it. What was so important that bumped him off of his message in between to kind of go on an aside, to kind of give another teaching or some more information, if you will. Well, Paul wants in this text the church in Ephesus and us in here today to understand with greater clarity the significance of the church. In light of the gospel which saves us and the plan of God for all of human history. In fact, what Paul is doing in this text is he's almost saying, in light of this, in light of the prayer I'm going to give to you, in light of the task and in light of what God is going to do, I want you to understand clearly the significance of what it is we're doing. The significance of this new society that God is creating through faith in Jesus Christ and he's going to emphasize this point by means of a backstory, of telling something that has already happened and bringing it to bear in, uh, in the writing of this book. Now, if you ask my wife, there's one thing that I loathe in the TV shows that I watch, and that's when all of a sudden there's a flashback episode. Because in my mind... If the, the narrative is going and then all of a sudden they're going back, they're like grasping for storylines. The show got away from them and now they have to invent a new storyline because there's not enough here. And so we're going to do a flashback and, hey, look, here's a fresh storyline that we can deal with. And it kind of hurts the narrative in my mind. This is not what happens when we encounter backstories in scripture. And that's due to one significant truth about God's word. Is that God's word is not simply a story. God's word is not simply a teaching. God's word is the divine interpretation of history itself, meaning that it's God's word and his indwelling Holy Spirit inside of it, which helps us understand things that at one point we didn't understand. In other words, God's word helps us understand this wonderful mystery that will always exist when there is a God who controls and knows all things at all times and people to whom God has chosen to only reveal parts and pieces at any specific moment in time. All knowing, knowing in part, and what lies between is this mystery. And I'm sure in your life you've been frustrated with mysteries before. You're frustrated perhaps with why is God putting us in the season that I'm in right now. It seems that we are in a season where there's so much physical hurt and pain and unknowns in our church body And for many of you, you wrestle with, why now? Why is this going on now? Or maybe the mystery of, what is it that I'm supposed to be doing? Or on a more spiritual note, what does God want from me? What am I supposed to do as a Christian? Well, the backstory that Paul is going to give today is a backstory that ends up pulling back the curtain of mystery. It helps us understand why and where and how we are to act in this time that we're in right now. And we're going to see three stories inside of what Paul is sharing. And this is what we're going to see. We're going to see first the story of Paul, second the story of God, and lastly the story of you. The story of Paul, the story of God, and the story of you. And let's look at our first portion of scripture today, which is the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 3. It says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of of his power. And so here we see the first point today. We see the story of Paul. Paul is providing a back story to his own conversion. And what he's really doing is he's beginning to define for us the very heart of the gospel, which he and all the other apostles during this time are beginning to proclaim. And in this passage of scripture, we actually see two aspects of Paul's story that he's stressing for us. The first is his unique calling, and the second is his specific purpose. Paul was uniquely called by Jesus himself. You see that in verses 2 and verse, in, in verse 7, where he's stressing this encounter he had specifically with Jesus and with the power of God. But then Paul's specific purpose was to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember, Gentiles is just this word in Greek, ethnos, this ethnics, people who are not Jewish, by blood, but we're parts of other nations. And so most of us in here, I'm assuming, are Gentiles. That's the category that we fall into. And we see this mission to the Gentiles in verses 4 through 6. And this is important because in chapter 2, Paul has gone out of his way to stress one specific truth about how anyone who has ever been saved has been saved. And that is that it is by grace through faith, not by your own doing, that anyone might boast. And in light of this, this pulpit pounding on grace through faith, Paul now turns to talk about his own conversion. And it's interesting because Paul assumes that the church in Ephesus already knows. He says, assuming you've already heard, and that's because Paul's conversion was a very well-talked-about conversion during this time. If there were a Facebook in the first century, this was the video that all of your aunts and uncles would be sharing on social media, saying, if you love God, share this now. This is the story that is captivating Christians during this time. But what Paul is doing here is he's saying, yes, there's this spectacular wonder that happened, but I want you to see how this story confirms everything that I'm telling you. How my conversion lays the basis and is proof of salvation by grace through faith. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Paul's story, that, uh, we're going to make explicit here what Paul keeps implicit in this text. And that's that Paul was at one time named Saul. And Saul was the most committed and legalistic Jew there was. Now, when we say legalism, we probably think of all sorts of things, and some definitions are good and right, and some definitions aren't how the Bible talks about legalism. But when we talk about legalism, all we're really talking about is holding yourself or someone else to a standard which is not the gospel, that there is a legal standard we must meet which is not the standard of grace in Scripture, and probably the most common way we fall into the temptation of legalism is to actually invert the order of obedience. And then we see, here we see how it's contrary to what is the gospel, which is the law of faith that Paul himself talks about in Romans, is this, the gospel says, you have been saved by God, therefore you obey. God has saved us, and now we obey. Things that demand obedience are not by nature legalistic. God requires us to obey. But if it's obedience in light of the gospel... That produces joy. But legalism instead inverts that and says, you obey, therefore God will save you. The gospel is, I have been saved by God, therefore I will obey. Legalism says, I will obey God, and therefore he will save me. And that only produces frustration. And this was Paul. This was Paul's champion cry. He was the one who fulfilled the Old Testament law, these rules that God gave in the first part of Scripture, he fulfilled it to the fullest. So much so that he said, if there was anyone who could have confidence in the way he lived, if there was anyone who had met to a T what the law demanded, it was me. I had a boast in the law. Paul talks about this in Philippians 3, where he speaks of his, his own self once more in verses 4 through 6. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh... I have more. You think you're holy. I was more holy, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's his way of saying, I was the man's man. I did exactly. I was the Hebrew of all Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. See, Paul here is saying that if there was anyone who it was possible to achieve salvation, to be justified, to be declared right or righteous by the keeping of the law, it was me. That was my hope. That was my identity. So much so that Paul was so fixated on the idea of the pleasure of God, the salvation of God, being in meeting the law yourself, performing in such a specific way to earn God's favor that Paul didn't just believe it. Paul didn't just proclaim it, but he made a commitment to murderously oppose any other doctrine. Paul took the mantle of seeing those who claimed salvation was by grace And he didn't seek to beat them in apologetics. He sought to murder them. He persecuted the church, the church of Jesus, because in his mind there was no way that would ever please God. The irony is that God was gracious to Saul. We read of Saul's conversion in Acts chapter 9. You're welcome to read that this week. And in this encounter, this road to Damascus, Saul is on the road and the resurrected Jesus speaks to him and blinds him. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus then leads Saul into a city where he meets with a Christian disciple there named Ananias. And there in the presence of Ananias, Ananias prays for him. The scales fall from his eyes. He repents and is baptized. But leading up to this, it's important to look at the interaction between Ananias, this guy who who God says, hey, Ananias, I'm bringing you the Christian butcher to your house. But then look at what God says he's going to do with Paul. And this is in Acts chapter 9, verses 13 through 16. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on my name, or all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so here we see Paul's unique calling. He was called by Jesus himself. That's what makes Paul, you often see Paul refer to himself as the least of the apostles. Because he wasn't like the rest of the apostles who lived with Jesus. Part of the mark of being an apostle was having an eyewitness encounter with Jesus. And so Paul's came in a different place came after Jesus was resurrected. It came through a miracle of revelation. That's what Paul's apostleship was in. And Jesus called him specifically to go to the Gentiles. And what's amazing here is the change of heart that Paul has. Paul went, we see the power of invasive grace in God's plan. The very people whom Paul was putting to death became by grace the very affection of his heart. Do you see the power of grace in the life of Paul? Grace came into the heart of a man so hardened against the gospel, killing the church. And we see how closely Jesus identifies himself with the church as his body because he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And before Paul ever made restitution for his crimes, before Paul ever issued a public apology, it was grace that changed his heart. That's what Paul's been preaching all through this book, right? is that you cannot earn God's favor. Paul was not in a position to merit the kindness of Jesus. That's what Paul just talked about last week, where it says that Jesus met the law. Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility, of the law and its ordinances. Only Jesus fulfills God's law. And the wonderful thing about Jesus is that not only does he perfectly meet God's demands, but he graciously and generously gives that righteousness to those who he calls to him. That's the love of Jesus. that He doesn't hoard what he's done, but he gives it freely to his people. And that grace which saved Paul now became the defining purpose of Paul's life. Remember, look back at what we saw in Ephesians chapter three, verses four through six. How does Paul understand his life? How does Paul understand all of the hardship? He's in prison. He's traveling across the globe. He recounts in other places the great hardships he went through. But how does Paul understand the purpose of his life? He says this, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The purpose in Paul's life the purpose that his conversion and the the unique calling it was proves is that he is now declaring the very mystery of Jesus Christ. The one who once built his life on the exclusivity of legalism is now broadly and freely proclaiming the mystery of Christ, which he says is this. Do you want to know the mystery of Jesus Do you want to know the hiddenness, the thing that makes sense, the the gap that bridges the God who knows everything and us who only know in part? Well, Paul wants you to know that. My hope in writing is that you might perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Well, what is the mystery? It is this, that the Gentiles, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, are fellow heirs, members, of the same body, partakers of the same promise through Jesus Christ. Now let's take the idea of doctrine aside. Let's, we have this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Let's put it over here. Let's forget the nuance that Paul is talking about with this. And let's just focus on the personal transformation that Paul had. Isn't this incredible that Paul, the persecutor and hater of Gentile Christians, Now has had this about face, not just in the doctrine he's saying, but in a fight for their inclusion in the promises of Israel. Can you imagine if Hitler not only changed his tune towards the Jews, but if Hitler was championing their full inclusion into the German heritage? That's the transformative power of grace that God had on the heart of Paul. He went from the greatest apologist of the law to the chief apologist of grace. He went from the number one threat to the Gentile church to him being joyfully imprisoned on behalf of the Gentile church. Brothers and sisters, if you doubt the power of grace, just look at the witness our brother Paul is providing for us in Scripture. Grace has the power to reshape the entire history and baggage of an individual and redeem it for the wonderful mission of God. No other writer in the New Testament stresses salvation by faith in grace like Paul. Why? Is it just because maybe if you were out on the, you're driving down the Bidra and Jesus speaks to you and he says, hey, Go tell the Darbinians that salvation is through grace. He said, well, I should do that because God told me that I should do that. Was Paul just the greatest missionary because Jesus told him to go do that? No. Paul was the greatest missionary because he himself knew in his own conversion that it was only grace that saved him. That despite his self-righteous attempts to earn God's favor, he was the furthest from God. He was the most influential missionary the world has ever known, and what lays at the heart of his passion for building churches across the Middle East and Europe and parts of Asia was the message of grace. That it's Jesus and only Jesus who takes outsiders and makes them insiders by grace. Now before we move on from this point, I want to press this doctrine of salvation by grace through faith through the story of Paul a little deeper into our lives. Because the truth is the very passage we just read, what Paul is saying here was probably the most shocking part of this letter to his original audience. This was the point of controversy. This is where, if churches were going to split, this is where churches were going to split. But for us, in the 21st century, this is kind of yawn-worthy, right? Of course we understand there's no race barrier to coming to Jesus, We know that now. We understand that anyone from any tongue, tribe, or nation can come to the gospel through Jesus Christ. But I want to press this doctrine of inclusion by grace deeper into our hearts for one moment because here's the thing, and what Paul is showing here is that in understanding salvation by grace through faith, it actually changes the display of God's glory. That's what we're going to see by the end. It actually has an impact on the way we live and understand those around us. Paul's zeal for the church Hinged on the idea that grace and grace alone can capture hearts and set the captives free. What motivated Paul? Grace and grace alone. That was it. Which means this that as we are members of God's church and we engage in the missionary task of sharing the gospel, we understand that there is no single person out there conducive to salvation. We tend to think that, well, I'm going to find this person who's really wrestling at this unique spiritual time, who has enough background with Christianity, who seems to be the most far off, who is really wrestling with the hard questions of life, and those are the people I'm going to share the gospel with because they're more prone to believe. But if salvation is through grace, grace alone through Jesus Christ, there is no individual conducive to salvation because we are all dead in our sin. That's what he says in Ephesians 2. But what it does mean, and what is the, the the draft that carries us outward is that what we have instead is far better. A God who is zealous for salvation. A God who, despite the circumstances, despite the hardness of heart, is eager to win souls to himself. If grace in the gospel of Jesus takes outsiders and makes them insiders, then there is not a person we should meet who we deem as unreachable or uninterested in the gospel. And again, I want to really try to work this down into our heart because we get that. None of us would go out and say that so-and-so is beyond the reach of the gospel. We know we wouldn't say that. But I know as I've been looking at Paul's Drumbeat through the book of Ephesians of grace and grace alone that there are times where I won't say it in my words and I won't necessarily look it to those who are around but in my heart I deem people to be unreachable or uninterested in the gospel and I don't consider them important enough to share the gospel with them. It's not ever by race or by skin color but sometimes it's based off of my busyness. It's based off the context that I meet the individuals in. Or it's due to the fact that I've already shared the gospel with them once. And they didn't believe. and So now they're a lost cause. But if salvation is by grace and grace alone, there are no lost causes for the gospel. There are no people unreachable or uninterested in the gospel, which the gospel cannot at a moment's notice transform by grace. Can you imagine what the evangelistic and mission ministry of this church would look like if the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith soaked deeply into our hearts. We would throw all of our considerations to the wind and we would dive into the lives of those created in the image of God around us and know that the grace of Jesus could work for them. Isn't this Paul's very point in this text? In the text we looked at last week, That it is the church which is built on people who were unreachable. The church is filled with people who were uninterested. The church is founded out of people who did not belong. But when the power of grace came through the faithful witnesses we all had in our lives and we heard the gospel and we believed by grace, we were changed miraculously and wonderfully from those who were far off to those who are near, from those who were unclean to those who are clean, from those who were without, to those who now have everything in Jesus Christ. I want you to hear this today. If you are a believer, this is what I want you to take away. That if you believe salvation is by grace through faith, then all of the hurdles of evangelism are removed. And we just get to wrestle with our own weaknesses. And this is our stewardship. Paul talks about his stewardship here. This is what God gave to him to steward. But actually in 1 Peter 4 verse 10, Peter makes the point that all of us have this to steward in our salvation. 1 Peter 4 verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. You see, the wonderful doctrine of grace can captivate our hearts in whole and transform our entire purpose in life. And that's just what it did for Paul. Paul gave his life to the church because grace captured his heart and he knew firsthand the power of Jesus and Jesus alone to set him free. And that's the story of Paul. But now Paul shifts, and he begins to share with us what is our second point today, the story of God. Paul certainly played a part, and that's what he's talking about. But behind all of Paul's actions, behind all of Paul's conversion, behind all of Paul's mission, God was creating a bigger story. Read with me verses 8 through 11 of Ephesians chapter 3. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so here in the previous part, in the story of Paul, Paul says you can't understand the story of his life without understanding the mission that God gave him. But now here, Paul is saying to us that you cannot understand the word of God, you cannot understand the purpose of God, you cannot understand the plan of God without understanding the mission of God of what it is that God is trying to do in this world through the gospel. He said, I was called to preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Now, that word that's translated in the ESV as unsearchable is a word that's kind of dumbfounded most translators and we can't grab uh, a full uh, we can't grab with clarity what the word is actually trying to say. And so if you take a survey of translations, this is what that word unsearchable, unsearchable riches is often translated as. The inexplorable riches, the untraceable riches, the unfathomable riches, the inexhaustible riches, the illimitable riches, the inscrutable riches, riches the incalculable riches, and the infinite riches. This is the mystery intention of the gospel, is it not? That Paul says the very richness of Christ is so beyond words. Now sit down and I'm going to say it to you. The wonder of the gospel is beyond human comprehension. Now listen up as I preach it to you. His job, and the job we have as Christians, is to declare something which is not declarable. To put into words something which is incommunicable. To describe something that is beyond comprehension. How? How do we do that? Here we have a message so phenomenal we cannot rightly or adequately communicate it. And a mystery so profound that we can hardly grasp it. And if you've shared the gospel with someone or if you've even been wrestling inside of discipleship and helping each other follow Jesus, you've probably run into this wall where words fail you. But in this, Paul says, go on with it. Go on in the weakness. Go on with your wonderful limitations. Go on with the mission. Speak what cannot be put into words. Why? What's our hope in this? Our hope is that it's not our story, but it's God's story. Look at verses 9 through 10 again and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why is Paul so committed to proclaiming this gospel of free grace even though it means his own imprisonment. Even though it's hard to communicate. Even though he wrestles to walk away from that conversation thinking, man, I nailed it. Because Paul knows, just as it was for him, as the beautiful message of grace and riches in Jesus Christ goes out, that it will bear fruit, that men and women will believe. And as those men and women believe, they are added to God's church. And the church in its diversity begins to display the monumental and mysterious plan of God that mere individuals on their own will always struggle to proclaim. God's plan was always in his wisdom to display his mercy and might to the world through his church. From day one, this is what God was after. This was the goal of God's creation. It's not something new. Paul makes that point next in verse 11 where he says this. This was according to the eternal purpose that God has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. The church, the New Testament, salvation by grace even to the Gentiles was not a consolation prize to God. It was not that God created people and he said, if you live perfectly, then you will get to be with me forever. And when they sinned, he's like, ah, shoot. Let's figure out something else. God's plan, we read in Ephesians chapter 1, was that before the foundations of the world, he would predestine us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The apostles aren't inventing a new religion because the old religion, the religion of the Old Testament seemed too exclusive and not applicable in an increasingly globalized world. We often hear that today though, don't we? That Christianity needs to adjust, needs to calibrate to the new needs of the world. This is the calibration. The grace that Jesus gives the church was always his plan, even in the Old Testament. The prophet Isaiah says this in Isaiah chapter 60, verses one through three, and listen to the nations that will be coming to God. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. To the new Israel, to the Israel, the people of God made by faith, nations will flock. Do you understand the wonder of this sentiment? Here you have, I pray that you have personal conversion through the Holy Spirit to God, that you have been saved, you have been regenerated, but do you understand the implications of that faith in texts like this, that it is about so much more. It is certainly not less than your individual salvation. But you understand the vastness of God's plan that is at play in anyone who comes to Jesus through faith. Christianity is not an accidental religion. Christianity is not a private faith. Christianity is not a blip on the radar of the history of religion in humanity. Christianity is by nature, by design, a missionary faith. A faith born out of a missionary desire of a good and faithful God. To unite the hurting to a healer, the homeless to a home, the sinless to a savior, the peopleless to a people. That is the gospel of grace that has been given to us. Do you believe that? Do you believe that it's not your efforts, that it's not your church attendance, that it's not the good you've done or the bad you've done which define your standing before God, but it's what Jesus has done for you? And when Jesus has won you to himself, he has won you to a new life of mission in him as the church, together for his glory. You see, God cannot be understood apart from his desire to display his glory through his redeemed church. That's what Paul is saying here. That the mystery of God, he says, it's been hidden for ages. It's been shut up, locked up, sealed behind a curtain. But now that very thing we long for, the secret recipe of Coke, the the secret of bushes, baked beans, all the more what we long to find out, the curtain has been lifted. The very wonder of God is being displayed in the church. Isn't that wonderful? You might not think so. But Paul says there is an audience that thinks so, right? Did you see that? Paul says the church displays the manifold wisdom of God so that in the heaven, so that they might know in the heavenly places, or excuse me, so that they might know the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places places. Meaning that as you stumbled out of bed to come here this morning, dragging kids by their ears, grabbing your coffee and sitting down saying, dear Lord, Jesus, help me not fall asleep. Angels rejoice. They see what is going on in the gathering of God's people and they marvel at the mystery This is it. This is what God was doing. This is the wonder of the mystery hidden but now revealed. The greatest unboxing in human history is the church. And you see, it's precisely this doctrine the doctrine that this gathering first and foremost changes worship in heaven that keeps us from becoming disappointed in the church. See, I encountered a woman the other day who had gone to church here for a number of years and uh, I hadn't seen her, so I talked to her and said, hey, where are you worshiping now? And she said she found a a church that has a Saturday night service um, and then she said uh, that she likes it because on Sundays she likes to sleep in more than she likes to go to church. And I don't share this story to shame this sister in Christ for anything and I'm glad she has found a church that she is worshiping with, but... I'm sharing this because it shows how monotonous and miserable church will be if we are the center of the gathering. If the church is about your preferences, your schedule, your worship style, your preferred preaching and illustrations, your community, you will always wrestle with its importance, but here the mystery of God revealed in the church is that the church is not about you. It is about together causing the heavens to rejoice at the plan of God's salvation finally being accomplished that the very mystery of the world, the purpose of it all is revealed in Jews and Gentiles and Montanans and Californians and Indians and Africans and Russians and Brazilians coming together through faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot make much of the God who saved you while neglecting the church which God designed to make much of himself. You cannot make much of the God who saved you while neglecting the church which God designed to make much of him. This is what you were made for. Paul says that the church makes known the manifold wisdom of God. That word manifold uh, is, is something that you used to talk about tapestries back in the day, which is super exciting for us to talk about. And so in these tapestries, there's this depth and texture and color and all of this, this, this nuance. And think of it as a symphony, is that when the symphony is apart, you've got all these individual instruments, these giftings given to the people, and they practice them alone. It's still beautiful, it's still a wonderful gift that all of these skilled musicians have. But let's take, for instance, a percussionist. I happen to have very limited knowledge or appreciation for percussion. I don't know what I'm listening to. And so if my neighbor is a timpani player and I hear him just in the midnight hours, boom, 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 like doing the drum roll and the Phantom of the Opera thing, I'll appreciate his dedication. I'll appreciate the gifting he has. But to a point, it might become monotonous white noise to me. It might not capture my heart. But take Eric who played drums for us today. He loves percussion. He appreciates it. If he could just hear my neighbor playing his timpani, Eric would be like raptured up into heaven into the glory of God. But Eric's neighbor is a piccolo player. (laughs) But when Eric and I go to church, Eric hears the timpani. He says, that's it. And I, I hear the piccolos, the pianos, the brass, the woodwinds. And they're behind it. Now I hear the... And now it makes sense. It fits together. It's the same thing, but together my experience is new. I hear all of the parts working together to show a glory which on its own was there, but difficult to see. And that's what God is doing in his church, is he is bringing together the giftings that he has given to you and to me and the other people in your community, and he is tuning us together to the melody of the gospel to display to the world the depth of the wisdom and wonder of God. As marvelous as our individual salvation is, and the gift that God has given us in it, it was meant to be played with the church. It was meant to display together what heaven itself longs to hear as the symphony of mercy. Why does Paul, imprisoned, sing for his joy in chains? Why would we risk the discomfort of sharing the gospel with others? Because God's desire is to build his church for the fame of his name. And this is the last story we're going to look at in closing. The story of you. Look with me at Paul's concluding remarks in Ephesians three eleven through 13. This was according to the eternal purposes that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we, that is you and me, have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. So Paul's writing this letter to the Ephesians church while he's in prison in Rome. And he is imprisoned in Rome precisely because the Jews framed him. They became frustrated that he kept proclaiming grace to the Gentiles. And so they ultimately had him thrown in prison through some manipulative means. Paul is in prison for doing exactly what God told him to do. Can you imagine how frustrating that would be for Paul? Can you imagine how frustrating it would be for his church? Hey, you do what God's called you to do while I'm in chains for doing what God has called me to do. It'll be super. But Paul says... Do not lose heart. Remember who it is that is the primary witness of the church. It is those in the heavenly places. Peter says in 1 Peter that the gospel we have in the church is something which angels and the prophets of the Old Testament longed to see. Which means that right now, Despite all of the hardships we have here on earth, there is an audience rejoicing at the works of grace that God is doing across the globe. The eras of silence and hardship make sense to the saints and angels because now they see that in the darkest times, God was still working. That all of human history led to this moment creation itself, the exodus from Egypt, the covenants at Sinai, the kings of Israel, the exile in Babylon, the construction of the temple, the birth of Christ, the cross itself, it all makes sense here in the church. This is what God was building. This is what he wanted. But to unredeemed and to human eyes, That eternal perspective is often dimmed, right? We get to heaven, we'll see with clear eyes. We'll be able to understand all of that mystery. But now, though we are exactly where God wants us to be, we struggle to see what God wants us to see. The world around us, and often we ourselves, we wrestle to see the plan of God with such clarity. We only see Paul in prison. We only see our frustrated attempts at evangelism. We see a $2 million need but because of grace, Paul is saying, we realize that it's always about Jesus's power and not about our own. There are times where it might require our sacrifice, but the truth is it's not our story. So he says, you have confidence, even when it seems the church might be defeated by human standards. In America, the church no longer has the sway over culture it once had. Across the globe, even secular Anti Christian scholars admit that Christianity is, bar none, the most persecuted people group on the face of the planet. Whether it's an unplanned building fund in Missoula, cultural oppression in London, or persecution in the Sudan, Paul says, We are the ones with confidence. We are the ones with boldness. Because we may at times, just like Paul, be in chains because of our gospel, but because the gospel isn't about what we did for God, but what God did for us. We know despite the obstacles, the hurts, the hardships, the persecution, the debt, all of that, that we have access to Jesus. And when we have access to Jesus, we have nothing to lose heart over. Do you have such eternal eyes for God's church and the churches around the globe? That we can have boldness despite the hardships we experience in the church. Because it's all God's work anyway. This story, the story that we are a part of, is all God's story. The church, this is the society you were made for. Grace has made you. Grace has sustained you. Grace will carry you. And grace has never let us down before. It is grace that leads our worship in the heavens and our witness here on earth. And it's no wonder that at this point Paul can't wait to pray. Next week, you get Paul's wonderful prayer. Next week, what a beauty that we get to come and be encouraged in prayer by the Apostle Paul himself. That's better than me. I pray for you every week. Here, Paul's praying for you next week. Come back, bring your friends. Because here's the truth. Everything we're doing here at Sovereign Hope, everything that Mac is doing on the hill, everything that churches across Montana and the nation and the world are doing, they are doing by the power of God most realized in faith and grace and because of that we the church do not lose heart but we continue to display the manifold wisdom of God in the heavenly places till he chooses to bring us there let's pray Lord Jesus we need your help This thing we do as the church is no weekend trifle, but it is the very plan of God, purchased in the costly blood of Christ, planned in the triune Godhead before the foundations of the world, that you might at the fullness of time unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Give us those eyes to see our work as the church. Bind us to your people so that the world might see your wonder. Prepare us for hardship. Be with those who are suffering. May our brothers and sisters in chains across the globe not lose heart for we have confidence